Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to Episode 3, The Old 76 House. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Robert Norden, the owner and tavern keeper of the 76 House in Tappan, New York, which was built over 300 years ago, and it's New York's oldest tavern. It's also listed as a national landmark due to its historical significance, particularly relating to the role it played in the American Revolution. Just about 20 years ago, a colleague of mine who shared my love of history attended a banquet at the 76 House for his Revolutionary War reenactment group. He absolutely loved the experience, and he recommended that my wife and I try it out. So one evening we went, and we absolutely loved it. And we've been dining there several times a year for the last 20 years, despite living an hour away. The food, the service there is outstanding, and the history of the building itself is fascinating. So without any further delay, I want to welcome the man who knows the most about the 76 House, Robert Norton. And Robert, welcome to Your History, Your Story. Thank you for joining us today. No, thanks for thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking with me. Robert, can you please tell us about the history of the 76 house? Oh, absolutely. It's a fascinating building and like most great American structures that date back pre uh colonial days, the history kind of grew with the time. The building kind of grew with the time. Our earliest section, a room we call the tap room, was built sometime between 1640 and 1686. And we know in 1686 that this room existed because that's when they began keeping the records for the town of Japan in this building, which was then called Mabee's Tavern or Mabee's Public House. And uh, the Mabee family was a merchant family. They had several buildings in Japan, but this was the one that everybody congregated in. It became kind of the public hall for the growing town of Orangetown. And Orangetown was the largest Dutch colony outside of New York. Well, of course, it was New Amsterdam back then. And this colony became very important as the air became rife with revolution many years later in the 1700s. This is where all of the leaders of the town of Japan gathered and drafted one of our first separationist documents, which is known as the Resolutions of Orangetown, July 4th, 1774. And in the much newer edition, which was added in 1755, we had the history that includes uh, Major Andre's imprisonment here. And of course, uh, we also had the very famous meeting between Washington and Sir Guy Carlton, wherein America actually received its uh, recognition by the English that it was free and independent of Great Britain. So that was that, that's the long and the short uh, story, uh, to which I'd like to add a bit more. Absolutely, particularly about Major Andre. That always fascinated me. Major Andre is uh, one of the most enigmatic characters in American history, and there it is. It's such a fascinating story, frankly, that many like vignettes of his life have been written, and our first kind of uh, motion picture that was ever made in America was actually about Major Andre Benedict Arnold and, of course, the infamous Peggy Shippen, who was kind of like the Helen of Troy of our Revolutionary War, a very beautiful young woman who caught the eye of a much older man, none other than Benedict Arnold. Um, she was a loyalist and came from a, a family that was very uh, well known as being uh, part of the king's entourage, and 
Of course, Benedict Arnold was the most notorious general. He was kind of like the rock star of our revolution. Literally, people had pictures of Benedict Arnold, you know, watercolors and so on, over their fireplaces. That's how significant he was to the revolutionary cause. And one of those pictures, by the way, was hanging over our fireplace in our tap room when Washington was dining, and the courier arrived and handed Washington the plans that were discovered on Major John Andre. And when Washington unraveled these plans, he instantly recognized the handwriting of one of his best friends. Benedict Arnold and Washington were very close. And that's how Washington came to the sure knowledge that Benedict Arnold was indeed a traitor. And he upturned the table he was dining at and walked over to the fireplace where there was this watercolor of Benedict Arnold and turned that picture upside down. And that self-same watercolor is still upside down over the fireplace in the tap room. We've since had to uh, reframe it, and it's like preserved in argon. So the frame is not original, but the watercolor is. And we've had to screw it upside down over the fireplace (laughs) because people keep getting up from their tables and turning it right side up until they realize, oh, it's intentionally supposed to be upside down. But getting back to Major Andre, he was a very well-liked person on both sides of the war. In fact, he had a very short stay here at the 76th House. He was uh, held here for three days. This was not a prison. He was given uh, a stateroom downstairs. We actually called the prison room because that's where Major Andre was in prison for his three-day stay. But Alexander Hamilton and Talmadge were living upstairs in guest rooms on the second floor. And the three of them took all their meals together. And Andre uh, was so enchanting that Alexander Hamilton pleaded with Washington not to execute Major Andre because of the just the virtues that this fellow embodied. Washington, by the way, and this is just a little personal view, um, if I may interject my little opinion here, a much more politically savvy uh, a person than we give him credit for. We think of him as a man that, like, you know, bound together this ragtag army and held it together with discipline and fortitude. But we don't really think about his statesmanship much. Uh, at least that, that wasn't the story that I got when I was studying history. But with the execution of Major Andre, it was a very calculated situation that Washington crafted, I believe, kind of from the start. Here he had uh, a man who he knew would operate in the code of honor that English gentlemen all operated under, or theoretically operated under, let's say. And so he knew that if faced with the question, were you spying? He would answer truthfully, yes, I was spying. And he would probably add that he was doing the king's business and, you know, couch it in terms of that nature. But that is irrelevant. And if if you're caught spying in, you know, military terms, your execution uh, by hanging was what happened to you. So Washington had this very circumspect trial for Major Andre when he was captured and brought here to Japan. He had a uh, court-martial filled with people whose reputations were very strong. Um, And to a man, they all were convinced of Andre's guilt because Andre walked into the church where he was actually being tried. The church still exists, by the way. It's diagonally across the street from the 76th house. And 
he walked in and the first words were out of his mouth were, yes, I was spying. You know, I, you know, I'm guilty as charged. And you know, he didn't leave any wiggle room for the tribunal to, you know, cast a cloud of doubt. And Washington, after receiving this, uh, you know, condemnation of Major Andre, ordered his execution by hanging. Now, Andre then became the first aristocrat executed by colonists. Not simply executed, he was executed in this base fashion, really only reserved for commoners. It so undermined the social fabric of the colonies that not only did it transform our war, which we all learned was about taxation without representation, but it was an economic revolution when it first began, a revolt against taxes and so on. Now it becomes a revolt against the treatment of citizens and that all citizens are treated equal here. And that is, you know, kind of how we feel our revolution was about, but it wasn't truthfully about that until October of 1780. And just three short years later, the war was over. And as we take away, our, our takeaway from that revolution isn't that, oh, well, we're no longer being taxed by England. Because, in fact, England was much more onerous on us, you know, leading right up to the eight, War of 1812 than they were even prior. However, in our own country, with the newly born America, we now have this idea that all men are equal and aristocracy is not only forbidden, but it's illegal. So uh, that's a very unique change to our whole you know, uh, thinking about our war of independence, at least in my mind. And it also shows how Washington took this situation, which um, admittedly was um, very precarious with West Point floating in the breeze, West Point being the actual strong point on the Hudson River, the only thing that's really keeping the British Navy at bay. And one must also realize that the only operative military idea that the English had for the preponderance of the revolution was to capture the 315 miles of fresh water of the Hudson. That was a, you know, they were going to bifurcate the colonies. They felt the North would capitulate without much struggle. And then on the southern end, they would tackle that as time as time went on. So their only military strategy was really to capture the Hudson River Valley and the only main impediment at that late part of our war was this this fort of West Point, which was was really impenetrable. It's the Gibraltar of the Hudson. So the story of Major Andre, getting back to the nitty gritty, is is one that ends tragically for Andre, but is very colorful leading up to it. He this is not the first time, uh, the time when he was finally found and tried and executed in Japan. It was not the first time that he was found doing things across enemy lines. And on, on the first occasion, he was put under house arrest. And he was under house arrest at the house of none other than Benjamin Franklin down in Philadelphia. And that's how he was introduced to this young lady known as Peggy Shippen. Through his association with Peggy later in the war, he was able to communicate under a pseudonym. Uh, he uh, pretended to be a, a ribbon and silk merchant and he was kind of uh, selling her favors and they would communicate in uh, um, uh, 
a code between the two of them to have her talk with her husband, Benedict Arnold, about allowing West Point to fall into British hands. Now, uh, oh, gosh. Andre, uh, when he was imprisoned at the 76 house, and so that, you, do you know specifically then where in the in the building that he was kept? Oh, yeah. Um, what's neat about the 76 is I came to this building as an architect to do the restoration work. Um, and uh, that was in the mid to late 80s. Uh, we had done the DeWint House down the street, and the um, folks uh, who were actively preserving this structure, um, you know, tasked me with being a site architect uh, during the building process. Uh, and what was neat about this particular building is it was one of a very few early American structures that was actually surveyed by what, by what was then called the Department of the Interior. And they sent a group of architects to draw everything from the molding to the footings to the actual stones that surrounded the whole structure. And so there were blueprints that were on file of this building that dated back to like 1830, like incredibly old, really neat. And um, the the room that Andre was uh, actually held in, you know, is outlined in, in, in that, uh, that kind of uh, floor plan of the old tavern. And then during the, during the Second World War, I have to add this tidbit, during the Second World War, the, the largest staging area of Americans who fought in the Second World War was Camp Shanks, which literally abuts the property of the 76 House. So it became like a, you know, very important to this Second World War effort as well, because all of this was kind of like the officers club for all the men and women who, um, who fought overseas. Um, I mean, they literally were marched down Washington Street, which is a street that dead ends into the front of the restaurant, and right out onto the pier, which they built in what was then called Japan by the Sea. We now call it Piermont because they built this giant pier in, in the town. Um, literally, they were marched right out onto the Liberty ships, which used to turn around in, underneath what's now the Tappan Sea Bridge and load them up. But the reason I'm mentioning this is they added a small room during that time, a room that you couldn't even get a, a cot inside. And they took an old wood desk and they cut it in half and kind of stuck it against the wall. And they took a chair and they draped an English uniform over that chair and kind of walled it off with like glass sliding doors on one side. And they called that Andre's prison. You know, it was kind of like a, uh, a tourist attraction. Sort of thing. Um, and it really, it was later on, they called it the commemorative room because it wasn't part of the original architecture. So when we did our faithful preservation efforts, we actually had to remove that room. And as I later became the owner of the property after the first group decided that their concept wasn't really getting much traction because they weren't operating the restaurant as a tavern. It was more of a high-end kind of uh, shishi New York style restaurant and this is a tavern it needs to be a tavern um, and that's what I embrace and it works uh, I think well for my customers uh, and, and for America period because what I'm doing here is not serving food or um, you know uh, providing a way for people to you know feed themselves I, I'm, I'm preserving something that is happening in the self-same way that our forefathers used this self-same structure. It's a place where people come just to be together. They come to do business. They come 
do, you know, have a great meal and a pint of homemade ale and all that good stuff, which is what taverns were, you know, initially essential for because, you know, there's no point in having a town if you didn't have a tavern in it because there's no point to go to that town because you couldn't water your horse and feed yourself. So every to get a patent for a town, you need to have the tavern first. Another reason why we know the 76 house was here in 1686, um, which is when Japan got its patent. Um, but, um, you know, what we're, what we're doing in the self-same space that Washington sat and was served, you know, probably a very similar meal. Um, certainly our ale is authentic as well, though he preferred Madeira to ale. Uh, and Laird's apple drank to anything else. That was his favorite liquor. Um, but it's 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 one of the only landmarks in America that you can go to and do that to also. I mean, it, it's very special. And uh, and that's why I, don't, I like calling myself a tavern keeper because it's what I am. I am, uh, you know, um, this is what we're, we're doing. When we're perpetuating something that is older, uh, and uh, then America itself, and just as precious as the concept that our founders of this, our country had with them when they when they sat in a tavern and fashioned our republic, Absolutely. which is, I think, really exceptional. It is exceptional. You know, uh, when I come there, when Kelly and I come there, I think the first time we visited, it was at Christmas time, and just the the decorations you had up and the atmosphere and the it was a fire in the fireplace and Benedict Arnold was upside down up on the. <laughs> yeah, you remember that guy? <laughs> I, I remember. And I just remember it, it was such a charming experience and cozy and being a history buff myself, I was just tickled pink. And I said, Oh my goodness, we're going to, we're going to come here uh, regularly. And then of course we told our kids about it. And uh, as adults now they, they go up. That's one of their favorite places to go. And I had a 50th birthday party there for me. And uh, we had other friends up there. We've always enjoyed it very much. But I just get that sense of history when when we're there. And I I think about just all the the transactions and the people who stood in there and and made decisions there and uh, just uh, joked or took care of serious business. It all happened there. And uh, I did want to say one, one last thing about Andre. So... When mm-hmm. he was when he was eventually executed, where where was he actually executed with in relation to the seventy six house today? Well, um, it's just behind the restaurant. It used to actually be part of the restaurant, uh, you know, property or what have you. Um, there's a very steep hill, and from the top of that hill, um, back in the seventeen and early eighteen hundreds, um, you could actually see Manhattan. And you could see all the way down to the Hudson River, which is why the next town over is called Spar Kill, because kill means river in Dutch. And spars, literally from the spars of the ships, you could see the spars of the ships in the river. So from that hill, the next town was called Spar Kill. But from that hill itself, um, you could also see Manhattan when the British were coming up the river. And that was where the execution actually took place. And they built a uh, gibbet, um, which he could actually see being constructed from the small window in the bedroom that he was staying in. And that's what makes the last three days of his stay at the 76 House very curious, because he had um, lady callers, and he sketched, made sketches, and he finished writing a satirical uh, drama that he was uh, um, kind of working on. He finished writing that. 
And these are not the actions of a man who's condemned to death and is literally watching his scaffolding constructed uh, day to day. You know, he's having these very uh, jovial and uh, animated conversations with Hamilton and Talmadge. And, uh, and the only person that, that, that wouldn't see him was Washington, who actually shuttered the, the, the building that he was staying in, uh, a building called the DeWint House. It was a farmer's home uh, down the street from us, which is now a Masonic uh, um, landmark. Uh, he was the only, you know, person who wasn't enamored uh, and drawn to Major Andre to such an extent that, you know, he was drawn into this web that uh, Major Andre seemed to be very easily uh, or adept at throwing around people. But um, getting back to what you were asking, at the top of the hill, not only was he executed, but that's exactly where he was buried. And there is a stone monument that was erected by the English after the War of 1812. Um, and during that time, as part of reparations between the two countries, Major Andre's remains were then exhumed and are uh, now interred in Westminster Abbey in Speaker's Corner. And if you mention that you're from Tepin, New York, it's one of the few codes that you need to tell the uh, docents at the uh, at the cathedral, and they'll actually walk you into that very private corner um, of the cathedral, and uh, you'll get to see the tomb that Major Andre is now entombed in, which is actually quite ornate and beautiful. Well, that's interesting. Uh, but he was transported in a little blue box. Yeah, a little blue. I heard a I heard a legend that uh, uh, that his not toe, about the toe about the toe. Yeah. The toe? <laughs> I, I have seen the alleged toe, and it is convincing. Uh, we um, have the historical society meetings both for Bergen and Rockin County here, and. Uh, Every now and then, it used to surface on the mantle, um, you know, during one or the other of these two meetings. And I've since learned that the fellow, the quote-unquote keeper of the toe, has passed away. And he was a hoarder. And they cannot locate the toe, the alleged toe of Major John Andre. But uh, as rumor has it, the... Uh, undertaker who did the work of exhuming Major Andre for the English was not the highest. Uh, was certainly he he got the he put in the lowest bid. Let's put it that way. So he was a little bit of a nefarious character, and uh, as part of his uh, uh, I don't know you know payment from the English, he took the toe bone of Major John Andre, put it in his snuff box, uh, and. Uh, and so we, we still have a bit of Major Andre still here in Japan. Oh, uh, but other people say it was a cigar butt. Other people say it was, I don't know, it looked pretty convincing when I saw it. But, uh, <laughs> um, I haven't seen it in many years, uh, not since that fellow passed. So uh, anyway, That's an um, story. that is the rumor of the toe. That's what I heard, uh, something about that. But I, I just wanted to just circle back real quickly on uh, one of the other major things that happened in the 76 House, and that was the Orangetown resolutions. Could you just Oh, absolutely. A yeah, there are three more. things that I really want yeah. to drive home that yeah, happened. Please. Our Orangetown resolutions, mm-hmm. which was our first Declaration of Independence, basically. Mm-hmm. On July 4th, 1774, the town elders of Japan got together, and in very couched language, you know, they said, we are still loyal subjects, I think is how it starts. And the end of it is, we will no longer be loyal subjects, <laughs> don't change. You know, so it's a, in very nice terms, hey, listen, we're, we're done with this uh, English rule unless you, you know, come to terms 
with a more egalitarian way of going about governing. And, you know, a lot of folks have suggested, and I think rightfully so, that the reason why we began to celebrate July 4th, because July 4th, 1776 has no relevance, nothing really happened on that day. Uh, I mean, our Declaration for the 13 Colonies was written on July 2nd, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this document, which was actually sent to the English, and not only sent to the English, but um, actually read by them, unlike the Declaration of Independence at a certain level. The, you know, um, and, and it happens at a time also, I'm sorry, here I am talking tangentially again, but I, I think it's one of the main reasons why we celebrate July 4th. But uh, it, it's also, if you think about the timing, uh, you know, in 74, uh, there have been skirmishes. Things are beginning to get heated. However, the war is not fully blown yet. It's beginning. By 76, it's a full-blown war already, and the uh, Declaration of Independence is icing on the cake. Um, uh, and a beautiful document it is, but we're already completely engaging the English army. So it seems like, you know, an ipso facto sort of thing. What I wanted to ask In you, my read, anyway. Yeah, I'm sorry. One of the things I want to ask you, so Tapan, from my understanding, at that time was uh-huh. largely a Dutch community. Yes. Is that true? Absolutely. Most, mostly Dutch. Um, though, interestingly, uh, Havastrud, which we now call Havastraw, uh, was colonized by 33 sailors um, put ashore by the Half Moon, which was Henry Hudson's boat. Now, or ship, I should say. Um, and these men uh, took local wives and this is a full generation before the 1640 migration of dutch to this area so there was already a full-blown kind of uh, you know integrated community that was beginning to blossom at this area the hudson river uh to which of course the you know the, the in 1640 there's a large influx of dutch families uh, and then by 1680, uh, 1686 to be precise, is when we actually got our formally uh, formal town uh, document known as the Japan Patent. So this, you know, this whole area was was in full swing. Um, you know, uh, very early on. I mean, 1580 is when they began uh, colonizing the area, which is that's a long time ago. <laughs> oh, yes. But when I mentioned the three things, it's the Orange Town Resolutions, the uh, the the, you know the major Andre story ending in his execution and, and the significance of his execution. And third, and, and not least, is the meeting of Washington and Sir Guy Carlton. After three days of tumultuous arguments at the DeWin House, they adjourn, agreeing to disagree, and they have a very ornate meal here at Maybe's Tavern. Actually, it was provided and orchestrated by Samuel Francis, who was Washington's chief provisioner and for whom Francis Tavern is named. He cooked this fabulous meal for Washington and Carleton, after which Washington was handed the plans of the British evacuation and the recognition by the British command that the Amer- that the that America was free and independent of Great Britain. And the two men got together in a coach and went down to Japan by the sea, again, as we now call Piermont, and the sloop of war, the Vulture, saluted America with a 17-gun salute, officially recognizing America as an independent nation on the water. That's May 3rd, 1783, or thereabouts, I believe, and 
that's our real Independence Day. Like, it happened right here in our front dining room, which I always find remarkable. That is, you see, that, uh, so I don't know how many people really know that. That is an amazing thing. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, yeah. that was the end of the Revolutionary War and really the recognition, physically recognition by the British, uh, and particularly coming from the Vulture, which if I understand was the ship that Andre was supposed to escape on, wasn't it? That's exactly right. The, the, the task of the vulture was to sail up and down the Hudson River, not to quite go as far as West Point, but to sail up and down the Hudson River and just harry the people, shooting grape shot into the tree canopies and so on, just to, you know, present misery for no apparent reason to these, you know, revolting colonials. And, uh, you know, what happened to Major Andre and the reason why, you know, uh, the... The vulture moved off its course with one lucky cannonball shot, which was like an air ball shot from a cannon that shouldn't have been able to travel as far as it did. It just grazed the mast of the vulture, and the grazing of the mast caused a splinter to fly out, which just happened to catch the captain of the vulture in the eye. And he was so disgusted, he ordered the ship to move station and go downriver, you know, as he, as he was being tended to. And that was, you know, one of many twisted turns of events that happened to poor uh, Major Andre on his route to return the plans of West Point to the English. Oh, my goodness. So, and that little splinter, right? had that mean, not happened. That maybe. one little splinter, and it would have been a very different story. <laughs> it could have been. Um, I, I did want to um, just go back to one other thing. On uh, When you were brought in as an architect to do some restoration back in the 80s, so how did that yeah. lead to you actually becoming the owner of the 76 house? Well, the, the group knew of my background, and I grew up in Francis Tavern, uh, which was my father's place. My grandfather actually named the tavern Francis Tavern. It used to be called Queen's Head Tavern. The, my background in restaurants runs deep, and so as they were opening, they, they knew of this. I joke about the, the restaurant being, business being a blood-borne illness, like once it's in your blood, you can't get it back <laughs> out. And so when they were struggling and unhappy with the turn of events, they asked if I had any interest in owning my own business. Now, what 20-something-year-old who's drawing toilets for a big architectural firm doesn't want to hear that? <laughs> so I came up here, and they kind of made me a deal I couldn't refuse. And my dad was generous enough to uh, give his blessing and then tell me it was the worst decision I ever made in my life. <laughs> so, which... I have to say it's not true. I'm very, this is something that uh, is going to live on after I'm gone. Though it won't be in my family. None of my kids want to be in the restaurant business because they're smarter than I am. But it'll be here and I will have given my, basically my entire adult life to it. And, and I think that that's an important thing um, oh, because yeah. not everybody gets to say that about how they spent their their time on this planet. So, well, you know, yeah. Robert, just the, just the way you tell the story I could just tell the passion that you have for, for the history of the ah, area, for the building, and not only just the stories, but that you're preserving it for future generations to remember the rich history that this area, the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area has, and places that are just maybe an hour or two hours away from our homes could be just an excellent learning experience for our children, for ourselves and things like that. And I just absolutely love that. I do have a question about the restoration for you though. Sure. What was the most 
interesting thing that you found during the restoration? While doing oh, um, in the wall, now remember back in the day, they used stuffed newspaper to use as insulation. So we found some really old newspapers, like it's crazy old. Uh, and they were always interesting, you know, to, to find one that you could kind of unravel and read. And it was like, I'm really neat. But the most amazing thing that I found is behind the bar, in between the wooden boards, was the original tavern license, which I have hanging now um, on the wall where there's like a little, we call it table 12. It's like a little nook that, that, uh, next to the bar in the old tap room. And it's got to be like one of the first tavern licenses ever issued by the state, by the brand new state of New York. So funny because you can tell that the form is like, you know, block printed, you know what I mean? That they were using and, you know, it's, but it's fascinating. Like, you know, I just think that's really cool. What and to find like the original one, it's like 18... Oh gosh, like eighteen twenty something, like crazy old, like and and like you know, pen really beautiful, flowery penmanship. I should really show. You know, I'll send you a picture of that. Oh, it's please really do! I would love that. And the next yeah. time I visit, I'd love to see that. Uh, I have to ask yeah. you this question because I know people will want to know. So I was told at one point that there was a story about a ghost table in your room. Oh, I was going to say, before you even said that, I was like, yes, it's haunted is what I was going to tell you. <laughs> well, we got two tables that are like hot spots, And I'm like, I've been here so long now. I'm part of the woodwork, literally. And this table 11, there's this uh, lady, definitely, it's like in a yellow, kind of a yellowy dress. And we literally have pictures of this spirit or whatever it is right i mean literally have pictures and but i've seen this person like it's kind of like i tell people like they're like what is it like i'm like it's like if i ran in the kitchen right now and someone quizzed you on what i was wearing you'd be like well i knew he was wearing pants but i can't really describe them to you <laughs> so it's the same kind of feeling like um, there was a time before I had my hip replacement, I'm just kidding. I did have hip replacement. That's all another story. But where I used to tend to the fires myself, bend down, turn them off at the end of the night when all the customers were gone. And time and time again, after a busy Saturday night, I'd bend down and shut the fireplace off, and I'd make a full blown apology and relight the fireplace because there was a person sitting at the table just to my left. And the waiters would see the person, and they'd go behind the bar because we'd always offer, hey, you want a little after-dinner cordial? And they'd reach up for the Sambuca because back in those days, everybody drank Sambuca after their meal for some reason. And they'd turn around to see if the person was going to say yes, and there'd be no one there. You know, this happened, I can't tell you how many times before we woke up one day and said, Holy Christmas, didn't this happen yesterday? Or didn't this happen last week? Or didn't this happen three weeks ago? And, and then everybody's like looking at each other like, yeah, this happened like all the time. What's going on? Like, And then all the waiters who used to do all their bookkeeping at the bar, you know, kind of looking in the front dining room, now they all do it in the other ducks' hole on the side of the restaurant. And late at night, they don't want anything to do with the old front room. <laughs> which I find hilarious. One, one thing but, I wanted to yeah. say was that uh, there was one of our visits there uh, with my wife and I, we walk in and uh, we asked, you know, they, they were going to bring us to a table and the waiter said, the hostess had said, would you like to sit at that table over there that's known as the ghost table or the one in the <laughs> corner is the romantic table? And <laughs> before, 
before my wife could say anything, I said ghost table. And I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got in a little bit of trouble for that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to, uh, yeah. I don't know if you trade it up actually. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we actually ended up, uh, the next time we went to the romantic table, but it's, there you table. go. See, we made up for as it. it should be. You, sure. you, you really answered kind of my neck, my, my, my next question, unless you want to elaborate a little bit, it was how did owning the, and being the tavern keeper for the 76 house impact your life? Oh, it had some positive effects and, and, and honestly some very negative ones as well, because you really, uh, I'm, I'm very wedded to this occupation and that's tough on a family. Uh, it's tough on a relationship because you know, how many weddings do you miss? I mean, I can't count how many christenings I missed and birthday parties and weekend fun things that, you know, my wife, who is an ex for that very reason, um, you know, went to alone, you know, finally it got to a point where, uh, you know, it's tough on a family, you know, and, and unless that baseball game is on a Thursday night, I'm SOS, you know. Yeah. So that was the downside. And the upside is now that everybody's an adult and grown and, and, and enjoying their adulthood. Um, they respect what I do and um, and they're very proud of, of the restaurant and what we do here and preserve it. And it's kind of our family legacy, so to speak. And from that perspective, it's, it's great. And what's nice about the 76 us, particularly in our community, is there's not a person that doesn't know it. It's such a neat, famous old structure. It's um, for my, you know, my kids and my family and so on. It's kind of like, oh, you're you're the owner of the seventy six. Ah, oh, you know, it's like a little, you know, feather in the cap for them also. So I think that that's kind of a positive. They're good representatives of what we're trying to do here too. So that helps. Yeah, and nice. and you know what? I I get a good feeling when I walk in when I come when I come home. You know come come here from from home and i open the front door and i walk in it's like i, I feel i'm more at home than i am in my house yeah. that that's the telltale i think and, for me and you know what i always i always know on the way out there's always going to be a little bowl of mints there to take with me yeah. as i leave <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately doing covid we can't do that anymore oh, so. no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got to say this, that I, I got to give another plug here for, for you because not only is the history amazing, but the food is, is out of this world. And uh, yeah, I've thank always, you so much. Oh, I've always had a, my personal favorite. And I think maybe with one or two exceptions in 20 years, I always get the Yankee pot roast with the Yorkshire. Oh pudding. God. Yeah. And I always amazing. joke with my regulars. Uh, yeah, thank you for ordering the pyros to put my kids through college. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's amazing. We use a, a special uh, cut of meat um, from. Uh, it's called a mock tender. It's uh, it's like my own secret uh, uh, recipe there, and the um, takes three days just to get the you know the the meat in order. We roast the bones for the sauce. That's a whole separate production. And then it all comes together with the, you know, homemade mashed potatoes, which are the same fellow that uh, I started working with 33 years ago. He is the self-same guy. He's like five years older than I am. And he's been making the mashed potatoes for as long as I've owned the restaurant. It's 33 years. The two of us come in oh, in the morning. He's the morning guy. And I go 
to the front of the house. He goes to the back of the house. Oh, my mouth yeah. is watering right now thinking about them. And <laughs> I know you're, you're a lot of butter in those mashed potatoes. Let me uh, tell you, <laughs> your staff too. The, the staff there is is has always been excellent, and we've never oh, had a bad experience in twenty years and places we're going to. I have one last question for you. Of course. Uh, what kind of an experience do you want visitors to the 76 house to come away with when they leave? That's a, that's actually a, a really great question because I, truthfully, I want them to, to take away from the experience exactly what they want from a dining experience. For some, that's just a good meal. For some, that's a good meal and good service. For some, that's really atmosphere driven for some, you know, we have live music all the time. So for some, it's like, Oh, I need, you know, I want to support the local arts and so on. And for some like you and me, that mix of history and doing what our forefathers did in the self same space and being with people we want to engage is, is what dining out to me is really all about. And, we have a chef who, who loves to blaze a culinary path, and that's, that's great. As long as we do it in the framework of what a classic American tavern should be, and I think we do. And so everybody can take away what they want from the 76th house without taking away somebody else's enjoyment of their experience. Mm. Meaning, like, it's a great, beautiful, historic tavern. But it's not like some of these old places with the cobwebs and it looks dirty and scary and dusty. That's not what an old tavern should look like. It should be clean and presentable and well-preserved and operate like a modern restaurant in an older structure that has a pedigree. Well, we have a pedigree, in my opinion, like no other. But that's what this restaurant should be to people exactly what they want it to be and it's so broad and so appealing to so many tastes that it it's uh it's very special and that's why i like that's why i like putting a key in the door well said and i can uh, attest to that as well i mean i've we've brought lots of friends there who are not history people like i am and they've come away with their excellent experience as well so what you've said is, is actually occurring. So I appreciate that. And I want to thank you, Robert, for uh, your gentleman. And you really run a wonderful tavern. And thank you from, I'm sure, many other history lovers who really enjoy hearing the story about such a great place and a building that still exists and that you know when you're in there, you almost feel the history in the walls. It's about the... Yeah, right. It's the... It's like history through osmosis. <laughs> it really is. And just keep doing what you're doing. And uh, again, you're, you're located in Tapan, New York. And, and what's the yep. exact address, Robert? We're at 110 Main Street, Tapan, New York. And that's uh, 76house.com. Very good. Uh, I want to thank you again. And I hope you have a great day. And uh, maybe we can talk another time about your experiences uh, with a dad and grandfather who... Involved in France. Downtown, yeah, oh gosh. Wax poetic about lower Manhattan. Uh, I literally grew up in the fish market. <laughs> I can't wait for that uh, one. But thanks again, Robert. Yeah. And have a great day. Oh, you as well. Thank okay. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.